0: Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. I, uh, we're going to be in Exodus this morning, but before we do, I just wanted to pause and praise our good father that we just sang to uh, about all the good things he's done this last couple weeks. Uh, it was an awesome ride up into Easter weekend together. Uh, two weeks ago, we had the Easter Egg Extravaganza in here with bouncy houses and plastic eggs, and uh, just had a lot of, pe- tons of people streaming through, and a lot of those people that aren't in our church or aren't churched at all. So just a, an awesome way to reach out to our community with some fun in the name of Jesus. And this last weekend, man. Man, what an Easter weekend we had together! Uh, Friday night here at the church in a, in a somber tone of, of praising our crucified Savior, and then on Sunday morning, uh, packed out of the So High Auditorium, just lifting high the name of the one who is risen indeed. And, and we just wanted to thank all those who helped put that on and be a part of that. It's cool to see the team, the body of Christ come together. At the brunch alone, we had 80 people bringing food at a, just a table of gluten, right? And, and we saw that line wrapping out the door to Sterling. It was insane. Uh, what happened there? But just seeing the way that we were all able to come together—what a, what a beautiful t- time! We even had twelve baskets of muffins left over, uh, as we'll see, echoing today's uh, sermon as well. But man, uh, just thankful to our risen Savior and, and, and the ways that we were able to praise Him uh, these last couple of weeks. So thank you for being a part of that, and looking forward to continuing on. Last week we studied uh, the the story of the Exodus, the new creation of God's people. God getting. Israel out of Egypt. Now today, as they journey into the wilderness, we're going to see God getting Egypt out of Israel. Do you see that? We'll we'll talk about that little turn of phrase. Um, 13 months ago, Jill and I created Lucy Joy Frankino, the little monster on the screen. Uh, and now our job as her parents is to raise her into an independent adult who's bearing the image of God. She's almost there. Uh, but in order for that to happen, she needs to learn how to trust us and obey us. So see, right now, Lucy is not wise enough. She's not able uh, to keep herself alive, uh, to provide for herself, to protect herself. We save Lucy's life like about a thousand times a day. Okay? Um, but we, in our house, uh, in our little Garden of Eden, uh, there is a tree. <laughs> and like Adam and Eve, uh, Lucy has now faced her first test in, in our world. And we said, Lucy, you are free to enjoy anything in our vast kingdom. Uh, but you must not touch this one tree, this bookshelf, or you will die, right? <laughs> We're first parents, first-time parents, just give us a break, right? Now, where is the first place that Lucy goes? Right? Exactly where we did, told her not to, if you ever needed proof of an inherited sin nature. And I can just see that little serpent slithering into the, her little brain. Right? Did mom and dad really say you couldn't touch anything in the house? No, of course not. And she says back to the serpent, no, dad said if I even look at the plant, it'll all die. Satan right? yeah. says, call OCS, sweetheart. No. <laughs> He says, you won't get in trouble. Dad just doesn't want you to read those books on the bookshelf and become wise like he is, knowing good and evil, right? Now, we need her to trust us, right? That if you touch, if you start pulling books off the shelf, you're going to destroy them, right? You pull that plant down off the top, it's going to bonk you on the head and knock you out, right? Like, we're actually telling you not to touch this thing for your own good, to trust us, that we have your best interest at heart and not to touch the tree, Right. Last week, we saw uh, God getting Israel out of Egypt. And just like our Lucy, God has created a new child to bear his image uh, in this world. But this week, we're going to see uh, God the, the other way around, God getting Egypt out of Israel. But now he's going to be raising his child to change them and out of their old learned way of living in bondage. And as we read on the screen a few minutes ago, what does it look like to live freely in this world, as God has intended as his children. And just like Lucy, Israel is not wise enough and they're not able to provide for themselves nor protect themselves. And so, here in the wilderness, God is going to teach them their most important lesson how to know that he is their God and to trust him, to obey him. See, so really, as, as we see, as we walk through the book of Exodus, we're seeing that, man, Exodus is really a pattern for the story of our lives today in Christ, that we too were born enslaved uh, to sin. But uh, the Passover lamb, his blood, as we celebrated last weekend, was shed in our place to then bring us through the floodwaters of death into a freedom and resurrection life with our God in Christ. But now we are on this long pilgrimage uh, through the wilderness, learning how to live as God's new people before we finally reach the promised land. See, after saving faith comes a long, hard, messy Beautiful journey of what it looks like to walk with Jesus, become like Jesus as we wait for him to come back and set up his earthly kingdom here forever. And our God has saved us out of Egyptian slavery, sin and death, but now he's got to get Egypt out of us, and that's a process. So today we're going to look from some tests that Israel faced in the wilderness, the result of those tests, and what our only hope is uh, today as, as those in Christ. So first of all, let's look at the test. He wants to test and see, will you trust me as provider and protector? I see three tests here in Exodus 16 through 18, really four. We're going to have time for three of them this morning. Um, But these three tests, first tests are about provision. Will you trust me to provide? Right after the Exodus, God's going to test Israel three times. Will you trust me? Will you obey me? See, God needs them to see for the road ahead. I'm not going to get you into anything. I will not also get you out of. And we need to know the same thing in our lives today. God is not going to get us into anything that he will not also, in his grace, get us out of. So these three tests, we see at Mara, uh, there is only bitter water for them to drink. At the wilderness of Sin, now that's not our English word, sin. So any analogies there, don't don't go there. Uh, it's It's a place in the wilderness. There was no food for them to eat. And then at Rephidim, we're going to see there's no water at all for them to drink here in the desert. Now, how is Israel gonna to respond to these three tests? Well we're gonna see that they have three F's on their little report card every time they respond to the Lord in unbelief, in grumbling and complaining. Here at Mara it says the people grumbled to Moses. What are we gonna drink? And then at the wilderness of Sin, they say the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, a symphony of grumbling. And then in Rephidim, there's no water. And it says, the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. The people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. Now, God just saved these people, right? Ten plagues. He parts the Red Sea and brings them out into dry land from their enemy that that they had been enslaved to for 400 years. And last week we saw this resurrection response song that they sing, but the song is just getting over. This is just the final brown. There's all, every good song ends with a brown. At least mine do when I'm playing guitar, ask Jill. Uh, But we see just after the final note, unbelief, grumbling and complaining, doubting God after all that he's done, who would ever do that, right? (laughs) Three lessons that we see from the grumblers today that I think can help us in our own walk. Uh, first of all, the false nostalgia of reality, uh, or, excuse me, of, of, about reality. So look at, look at uh, Exodus 16. The, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread that we wanted. Now, you say, what dictatorship were you living under, right? You weren't sitting around eating out of meat pots, although a meat pot sounds amazing, by the way. I would love to get one of those pots. You were making bricks in the hot sun being whipped by slave drivers, right? You weren't lounging and feeding each other steaks. Like, but don't we do this all the time? Like, we, man, life was so much better before, right? Before I got married or before I was single again or, or before the kids came into the picture or, or back before everything got so busy or I was burdened with responsibility or whatever it is, we see the past with this false uh, rose-colored glass on us. And we also see some false assumptions that have been made about their God. The Israelites said to them, um, to Moses and Aaron. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Or again, at Rephidim, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us, our children and livestock, with thirst? Here we say, God, you brought us out here to die. See, every sin in our lives stems from a wrong view of our God or unwillingness to believe who our God says that he is. So either here they see him as vindictive, that you would torture us to save us out of Egypt, only to kill us out here in the wilderness. Or they see God as incompetent, that you're not able to provide everything that we need. And this is also our lives, isn't it? Like God, I can't trust you. You are not for me. Why would you torture me this way? If you loved me, you wouldn't let this happen in my life. And the final lesson that we see here is the insanity of grumbling. Look at the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. Say it out loud. They're saying, it would have been better if we had died, right? Like back in Egypt. We would be better off dead. I mean, can you hear yourself? And this is where grumbling takes us. And oftentimes, I mean, grumbling, we're, we don't see that as like the mount, on the Mount Rushmore of sins, right? It's not adultery, murder, grumbling and complaining, right? That's not, but man, do we see... The seriousness of grumbling here. It's an accusation against their God. They're saying, you don't deserve to be in charge, God, because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to run the world right. And what are they really saying? If you would listen to me, then things would go well. In essence, I don't want you to be the Lord. I want to be the Lord. And grumbling, like all sin, it leads to death. And literally, for Israel, this generation is going to die in the wilderness, stiff-arming their God in unbelief and grumbling. But how do we see our God respond to these three failings? Every time we see a gracious provision. God, God, they don't deserve God's providence, right? They have failed each time, but instead of failing them, flunking them out of class here in the wilderness, he provides. With the, in the bitter waters, he, he makes them sweet at Mara. He, he rains down manna and quail, bread and meat from the sky in the wilderness of Sin. And then at Rephidim, Moses strikes the rock with his staff and water comes forth. But I want to zoom in on this uh, idea of the manna here in chapter 16. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, right? And I think as it goes through the sky, it actually loses all the gluten. It's this really cool process. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way, I will test them to see whether or not, there's another test, will they follow my instructions? On the sixth the day, when they prepare what they, bring, well, what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So he says, I want you to gather just enough bread for that day, except for on Fridays, you're going to get as mu- enough for Friday and for Saturday, which we'll see becomes their Sabbath, their day of rest. And this is a lesson on, on him providing our daily bread, that just enough. For, will He's saying, will you trust me every single day? They say faith doesn't have rollover minutes. That's becoming a dated reference. That you wake up every morning trusting me all over again. And we see here God giving them a practice to help reorient their hearts to trust their Father. It's a practice of Sabbath. He says this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest. A holy Sabbath, that word means to stop, to cease, to to the Lord bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning so the people rested on the seventh day. See, just like Israel, our hearts are prone to wander in the wilderness. And so God gives them, them, and I, and I believe us today, a reorienting practice called Sabbath. And we actually seen this sewn into the creation order on the first couple pages of Genesis. So I think this transcends the Mosaic law. We'll look at that next week. I do believe this is a practice for us to benefit from as well today. Um, see, in an agricultural society, this was insanity. For, for them to say, don't touch your crops for an entire day, every week, They say, we're going to die. Like, if we don't keep those fields humming with our food, we're not going to have enough to eat. That's a step of faith. And for us today, we might think, shoot, Sabbath once a day, or once a week. I Sabbath twice, right? I'm working for the weekend, baby. And some of you guys are like, well, I work seven days because I'm a shift worker. Okay, but then you also get a week or two off, so just chill out, okay? (laughs) But actually, I think we stink at real Sabbath, typically. Um, If you ask somebody... Do? Hey, man, what, what are you up to this week? What's almost always the response? It's some kind of a busy, busy, busy. Like, man, it's crazy. Like, if you looked at my calendar, you would probably fall over dead. Like, it's, I'm so busy, right? We're all so busy. And, and, and for us, I don't, I don't think, like, for them, it was a fear of a food shortage. And I don't think us stopping and resting is necessarily a fear that we're not going to have enough food on the table. But I think for us, there's some fears of obscurity, that maybe we're afraid. Like, imagine if someone asked you, hey, what do you got going on this week? And you're like, nothing. I'm doing nothing. Like, I, I, I have no plans. Uh, nobody needs me. I'm not important. I contribute nothing to this world. I have nothing fun going on. I'm just a bored, social leech. What, what are you doing? Right? Like, I mean, that, I think that's kind of the subtext running in the back of our brain. And and for me to take a full day to stop and rest and just worship my God, and and it's to say, man, He is my relevance. That that my importance, my identity, my worth, my my satisfaction is found only in my God. And I'm going to take a rest from everything else to tell my heart that. It's not what I do, it's not in my performance. Thought of in my indulgences. And that's, that's scary, isn't it? That's also where joy is found. See, the antidote for not grumbling is not stop grumbling, right? Like if I tell you don't think about a pink elephant, don't think about a pink elephant, what's coming into your mind? And if we just say don't grumble, don't grumble, don't grumble, that's... So what do we do? We, we remember and love who the Lord is and how he always keeps his promises. But we can't do that if we never stop Moving. We must, brothers and sisters, be still and know he is Lord. God says, Man, this is how this is going to work. Like, you can't live independent of me. I will provide. I will care for all of your needs. But for you to live, you've got to trust. You've got to walk by faith and stay true that I will stay true to my word. So he invites them into this test, which they fail with flying colors. Let's look at the result. And if you're following along with the notes in there, I had to skip over the next one, the protection test and the, the reorienting practice of prayer. So you can write in those blanks and, and go back and look at that passage later. Okay. So it's, it's the Amalekites. Uh, they come and attack. Moses lifts his hands up in prayer to God, and they find victory over the Amalekites. But we'll just keep moving on here. Let's look at the result of their failed test. The nations will know that I am the Lord of lords. So chapter 18, Moses' his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people, Israel, When the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. So this is Moses' father-in-law. We, we met him earlier in Exodus when he first fled out of Egypt. And so Moses' wife and children had actually stayed out in Midian with um, with Jethro, his father-in-law, while he was uh, delivering the people of Israel. And what we're going to find here in chapter 18, uh, he has a typical father-in-law who overstays his welcome <laughs> and offers unsolicited advice to his son-in-law, right? I'm kidding, Brian, who's also a former Navy, so I should probably respect my father-in-law. Um, he sees Moses, his, father, his son-in-law, and he sees that he's overworked. And so he actually suggests, you need to put people under you to go to first. And there's some really cool lessons in there of uh, delegation and leadership, of a plurality of leadership. Uh, That's another sermon for another time. What I want us to zero in on here is who Jethro is. So Jethro is from the land of Midian. He's a Gentile. Very likely they lived over on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. We don't know for sure. So the Midianites actually stem all the way back from one of Abraham's other wives. And they're a Gentile uh, nation. So what we see here is a Gentile response to all that God has done for the people of Israel. Look at what he says. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that confronted them on the way, and how the Lord rescued them. Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, exclaimed this Gentile who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh, he has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. Then Moses' father-in-law Jethro brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. So this is... This is why God said he rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt so that the nations would know, so that Egypt would know, so that Midian would know that he is greater than all the other gods. And this, is, this takes us back to his purpose in, in, with Abraham in Genesis 12, right? He said, I'm choosing you, Abraham, from all the nations to be a nation that blesses all the other nations. Like, that's the, the whole idea. Now we're going to sing at the end of our service today, God so loved the world that he gave us the son. That God is going to save the world through Israel. And at one time, see Midian was actually not just not Israel, they're an enemy of Israel. Remember when Joseph got sold into slavery into Egypt in the first place? That was the Midianites. And they are going to see later on in Numbers and in, and in uh, Judges, Midian fighting against Israel. But here... When Jethro worships the God of Israel, we see a unity, a fellowship between Jethro and the people of God as they break bread together, the nations coming together through God's sovereign work. Now, the funny part is here, did Israel pass their test? They did not, right? Every time God tested them to see if they would trust him, they fail miserably. So why is Jethro so, un, so impressed with the God of these whiny little babies, right? How is Israel used as a testimony to convince Uh, Jethro that God is the God of all gods. Shouldn't God, shouldn't Jethro look at these grumbling, complaining, hypocritical, unbelieving people and go, what kind of a God is that? I mean, did you read these stories? They they failed to believe God at every turn. But that's the point. Their witness was what their God had done for them, in spite of them, not because of them. That God rescued them out of Egypt, not because they were more worthy than the other nations. God is saving them through the wilderness, not because they've earned his love, because he is a God of love and he wants to show the world his power to rescue them out of evil Egypt and to rescue evil Israel from itself. And this is our story, and this is our song too, brothers and sisters that we often think, maybe, maybe you think, I can't be a witness to the world. I, I can't be used by God. I, I'm as much of a whiny baby as Israel. Like, I, I'm grumbling all the time. I'm a flaming hypocrite. I fail to believe my God on a semi-hourly basis. But my witness to the world is not my little Boy Scout merit badge and all my pins of trusting God and obeying God. It's my God saved me in spite of myself, not because of myself, and through my grumbling, he proves himself faithful. And now he's growing me by his grace, by his power, and that's why he gets all the glory. And our purpose is the same purpose as Israel. First Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. We're going to see next week that's the same language he uses for Israel as Paul uses for the church here. So that, here's why he did that, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness, out of slavery, out of sin, out of death, out of bondage, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And our witness to the world is that I am one who has received the mercy of God. By definition, I did not deserve it. How do we do this? How do we become these kind of people? Well, this story, like all the stories of our Bibles, points us to Jesus himself. The hope that we have is not that we will pass the test. The hope is in Christ himself, the better provision and the better protection. Let's let's look at this first, the provision. It's crazy to see here the parallels of the story today in Exodus with Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Here we have another test with God's people. This is when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him. He asked Philip, one of his disciples, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? So again, how is God going to provide bread for his people? He asked this to test him. Here's another test. For he himself, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he wanted to see if Philip would trust him. And here again, we see an Israelite doubting. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, which is what they had, worth of bread. That's not going to be enough for them. We, we don't have enough bread, Jesus. And we're going to see, again, the, the people of Israel grumbling against their God. But just like the manna in the wilderness, we're going to see a supernatural provision of bread. Everyone will have enough. And how much is left over? Twelve baskets full, which represents the twelve tribes of Israel. Once again, God himself is providing enough for his people, Jesus is underlining here God's lesson in Exodus. My Father is going to provide all that you need, all the food, all the water, all the protection. And Jesus says this: He "says Truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. My Father is the ultimate provider and protector. But 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 ultimately, He's going to say, what you need is not the gifts." It's not the bread, it's not the water, it's not victory in battle. What you ultimately need is me. Look what he says. For the bread of God is the one, here's his bread, the one who comes down from heaven and gives, us, gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. I love it. We want this bread forever. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me who will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. What a beautiful picture here is Jesus breaks the bread and passes it out and passes it out and and has enough for everybody there even when it didn't seem like that would be possible. And once again, we're going to fast forward and what happens in the Last Supper that we celebrated last week. He breaks the bread with his 12 apostles saying, I am enough. My broken body will be enough to feed you forever. In fact, Jesus says this is the only way to life. He's going to teach them in, in verse 53. I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. This is a hard teaching, and to be fair, that's weird, right? And the people just start leaving, right? That's how you know you had a good sermon, right? So, that's, I'm, if people start leaving midway through my sermon, I'm like, all right, Lord, I'm on fire. Uh, the, he says, unless you eat of me, you cannot have life. Israel was rescued out of Egypt, but now they're on a journey of getting Egypt out of them. And what we learn today is the same thing. For us to stay alive on our journey, we must feast on Jesus. But what does this mean? What's the work of feasting on Jesus? Well, he tells us in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Our job is is to believe. So what does that look like practically for us? That means trusting Jesus with all of us our deepest places of vulnerability and need. That means for some of us, we've been there. We're, we're not sure if there's another paycheck coming. We're not sure what the test results are going to be at the hospital. Like, when we get to the, the dark place in the, the valley of the shadow of death and we feel dehydrated in the desert and we have no other source for survival, to learn that we, can't, we cannot depend on the bread, the physical bread of life. We cannot depend on our vocation, our financial security, any other human. There's one source and one source alone. But how did Jesus provide this bread of life? Zoom back for a second to, to Rephidim, where they bring the water out from the rock. Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders with you. Take the staff. Remember the staff you struck the Nile with, turned water into blood? We need to take that in your hand and go. I, this is God talking, I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. And when you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in sight of the elders of Israel. Now, this is crazy. God says, I want you to strike this rock. And I, where's God going to be? He's standing in front of the rock. So in essence, when Moses strikes the rock, he's striking his God. God. This, this word, this rock at Horeb, remember, Horeb is, is the same place God met with Moses in the burning bush. This is Sinai. This is where next week, next chapter, God's going to give the law, his will to the people of Israel. And here is the very presence of God standing in front of the rock, and he says, strike me. It's by striking me that you will have rivers of flowing water. And in case we're slow to the game, in case we're confused about what this is pointing toward, this is explicitly said through the Apostle Paul in Corinthians. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That it was Jesus himself who was struck. Why? He says in Isaiah 53, he was struck because of my people's rebellion. You see... The reason that God could graciously respond to Israel in the wilderness and not kill them for their unbelief and grumbling and complaining like they deserved is because he was himself going to come and take the punishment for their complaining and grumbling and for my complaining and grumbling and for your complaining and grumbling. Moses' staff, the same staff that drew blood from the Nile, is now drawing water from the rock. And this again points us to Jesus in John 19. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And what comes out? Blood and water. The living waters of life from the blood of Jesus. And you see it. And Jesus said, out of me comes flowing life of living waters. John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink, Jesus says. The one who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, will have streams of living water flow deep with him. And what does he mean by this? That's a weird saying, Jesus. He says, he said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit. Jesus was struck and our thirst was quenched. How? He places his spirit in us, the spirit of life. And now, with his spirit in us, that we're born again as we pilgrim home. It's that spirit in us that sustains us, enables us to put our eyes on Jesus. It's this spirit that's going to work Egypt out of us as we grow in Christ-likeness. Just like Adam and Eve back in the garden. We see Israel here given a command about eating. But really, it was about trusting and obeying their God. And just like Lucy, standing before her tree in her test... Adam and Eve, standing before their tree in their test, Israel failed the test. And so do each one of us. But this points us to the snake crusher that was promised in the garden. That they were promised, who also went into a wilderness and was tested in regard to bread. But this time, the Savior said what? Man shall not live by bread alone, but on the word of God That Jesus was the only human who ever said, I fully trust my God to provide. I'm fully going to obey and do whatever my father says. And that qualified him to be the only perfect human as God himself to die in our place and then raise up as a portal to the new life. And brothers and sisters, that's our witness to the world. That's our story. That is our song. As Paul says, we have this treasure, the treasure of Jesus himself, the very spirit of God in us, in these clay jars, in these cracked, broken vessels, because we're not, we're not bragging about our own vessel, he says, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. So what do we do about this? I want to give us a little bit of space here at the end to do some heart work before the Lord, because like Israel, guys, we are all prone to wander in the wilderness, Lord, I feel it. So what reorienting practices do we need to adjust this week? We we talked about the Sabbath. And, you know, imagine 24 hours every week set aside to, to stop everything else and turn our hearts to God. Now, for most of us, this is Sunday. And we even see the New Testament, the Lord's Day. Uh, we're going to see next week. We're not under the Israelites' mosaic code, or that was a Saturday, Friday night to Saturday nights. Now we got slope workers, and there's consider, you know, even a guy like me. I, I'm working on Sunday, so what does that look like for me? The point here, it's this is not legalism. The point here is not to, to God, I'm going to put aside a day every week to make you like me and love me. No, it's because our God loves us and He wants to spend time with us. And of course, there are exceptions to this. And we are talking far beyond just attending church on Sunday morning. What would it look like to set aside a day specifically just to stop and worship our God? Now, I always, I always recommend just making little adjustments. This doesn't all just happen at once. So, so for me, one practice has been for, for one day a week during that kind of Sabbath period before the Lord, I take my, my cell phone and I stick it in a drawer and I don't touch it for 24 hours most of the time. And I mean, that's a hard thing to do, but it has been one of the most life-giving things to slow down and be still before my God is to remove that little rectangular distraction. Maybe for you, it is just being consistent on Sunday morning. That's a, that's a place to start. They say, I need to worship my God through song and, and through the word every single week. So unless I'm out of town, unless I'm sick, one of those things comes up, I'm gonna be there. Just that, that commitment, Maybe for you, it's, it's taking a quiet walk with the Lord. I'm going to get away from the noise, get out into nature, away from the kids for a few minutes, and just walk with my God. Maybe it's as a family, we're going to come together, and we're going to sing a song together, we're going to be in God's word, we're going to watch an episode of The Chosen, like whatever it is. Maybe it's having some, some close friends over for a meal, and just to enjoy the sweetness of fellowship as Jethro did with Aaron and Moses. Rejoicing over who our God is and what he's done. Maybe it's carving out that time in the morning. Say, this week I'm going to go to bed a little bit earlier, get up a little bit earlier, to quiet my heart before my God, to reorient my prone-to-wonder soul. It's what redirects you to God's presence, away from the distractions, away from the things that you tend to depend on instead of him maybe for you it's prayer in your life that that it, learning what it is to trust god with a material need a physical need in your life sometimes that is so hard but even deeper the need for jesus himself and oneness with him he said i am the bread of life Be- becoming more like him so let me ask you what part of egypt does the holy spirit need to extract from you this week Maybe it's a need to forgive someone in your life, to let go of the bitterness and resentment of somebody who's done something terrible to you. Well, we cannot do that apart from the spirit that's alive in us. Maybe it's, it's him massaging some patience and kindness into your heart for that person that just came into your mind. Little practices. Maybe it's, you know, I've talked about in the morning, a great way to start as you're in the shower, there's a time just to be quiet. And as you're showering, like, just turn your heart of anger or fear or anxiety to the Lord. Maybe it's on the way as you're driving to the next thing. You're, you're going to go pick the kids up from school. You're coming home after a long day of work. Or you're about to have a, a go-to-work. And, and, you're, and especially in those moments where we're, we're scared about something, we're angry about something, instead of listening to the podcast or the music, you're going to be quiet before the Lord. One little tool that I, I just wanted to offer... Um, been walking through this. actually got a hard copy of it for my birthday. It's called Be Thou My Vision by Jonathan Gibson. And it's, there's uh, each day of the month, so 31 days in here, there are some readings, some, some prayers from saints of old, uh, some scripture passages. And they walk us through, similar to what we did earlier, uh, through praising our God, the confession of sin, assurance of forgiveness, just kind of walking through those gospel rhythms and rehearsals. Uh, just some beautiful, some prayers and just ways to kind of in the morning help guide my time with the Lord in thought and prayer it would be something... Uh, that maybe you could utilize yourself but this what we're talking about guys this is about the person of God and about our hearts before him I'm not talking about just a day off or or chanting some words before him the question is what, what practices do we need to implement to help orient orient our hearts back to the Lord to trust him that Christ has sufficiently given us all we need because of his, his act in the past and that that same God will give us all that he promised in the future. I want to close with this prayer. This, I uh, was reading this, this passage in our reading plan this week and I love this promise from Paul in Corinthians 1. It says, he, our God, will also strengthen you to the end, to the halfway point, to three quarters of the way, to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. The same God who saved us out of Egyptian slavery to sin and death has also promised that he will save us to the end. That beautiful day when we see Jesus face to face. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness in the story of Israel. Freeing them from Egyptian slavery. But then to continue to be faithful as you taught them in the wilderness of what it means to to trust God and to see that in their own hearts, in their own lives, they were incapable of doing that. And so one would have to be struck on their behalf and through Jesus' perfect trust and obedience to you, may we be given his bread of life, his living waters, and that with Christ in us, we can be renewed to be a people that can trust not in bread and water, but in to trust our God himself. So Father, I just pray. That each of us, we're in different places around this room, just wherever each of us are at, that as we move forward into Monday morning, that we would have ears to hear what it is that you're calling us to, those little practices that need to be adjusted, so that we can take our eyes off ourselves in the waters of sometimes legitimately scary and overwhelming circumstances onto the God who's able to provide all the bread that all of us need for all We rest in your providing, protecting name. The name of Jesus and all God's people say.